Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, good evening, everyone, or good afternoon, or good morning, wherever you may be listening to this show. If you're listening live, it's good evening. But this is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Roots show. And we're on special edition on a Tuesday, if you're listening live. We usually come on Friday and Saturday, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But sometimes we do these special shows during the week. I love doing that. And I'm going to, you know, this is a very important show for me this evening because I've been waiting to get this guest a long time, Dick Lair, who will be on about 17 minutes to talk about his book, The Birth of a Nation, how a legendary filmmaker and a crusading editor reignited America's Civil War. It's all about the movie, The Birth of a Nation. But before we do that, I'm going to play right now Kamasi Washington from his new CD, his monumental three-CD set. And I'm going to do the message because there's an important message that we're going to be talking about when we talk about this, his book, Dick Lair's book, The Birth of a Nation. So let's hear it right now. Kamasi Washington on the Root and Root Show. We're having a little technical problem here because usually what happens is since I'm on on Fridays and Saturdays usually that the music automatically just cues up on its own, but it's not doing that. So we're going to try something else here on the Root and Root Show, but we'll have that song shortly. But in the meantime, if you want to call in, it's 424-675-8315. It's the Root and Root Show. And I want to say hi to my friends out there in Colorado that listen on K-U-H-S, radio and television, created by the great Henry Archuleta. It's just a wonderful, wonderful station, and I'm just happy to be a part of it. And happy, you know, just happy to be on here tonight, you know, giving you good dialogue, good conversation, and just, you know, just making you think. That's the main purpose, to make you think, enjoy the music. You know, we try to do our best here on the Root and Root Show. And I want to thank those who have supported the show, who are followers, continue to um, offer suggestions as far as what we should do as far as the show, as far as uh, guests, topics, because the majority of the topics on the show come from listeners like yourself. So I really appreciate that. And as I'm talking, I'm trying to get this music together so we can just listen to some Kamasi Washington talking about the message on the Root and Root Show. We'll have that in a few minutes here. But if you want to join the family here, you can go on. You can go online on social media. Go to blogtalkradio.com. Look for the Root and Root Show. Also, you can go on iTunes. You can go to social media as far as uh, Facebook. Look for Greg G R E G last name Rashid R A S H E E D. Or you can go to Twitter hashtag Unifix U N I F I C S as in Sam, hashtag Unifix, and join the family that's been around for going on, what, three years now doing this show. So I hope you will really do that. But we're getting our music together right now, and we're going to have it on right now. So let's hear Kamasi Washington, a message on the Root and Root Show.
All right, that was Kamasi Washington and the message on the Root and Root Show. I hope you enjoyed that. It cut off briefly. Um, I don't know what happened there, but there's a little problem there. I think we're blog talking. Actually, probably my signal here, but I hope you enjoyed that. I love that CD that he has out, Monumental 3-CD set. It's just something that but we're waiting for our guests to come on here. So in the meantime, I'm going to play something else a little shorter and while we wait for our guests. And I'm going to do this because this is appropriate to what we're about to be talking about. This is um, the music from, the beginning music from Birth of a Nation, which we'll be talking about, the movie from 1915 and... It's the movie that basically sets up a lot of the stereotypes that you still see in movies now, still see, you know, and just a little bit of every media. And I'm going to do this right now. We're going to see if we can get a hold of this uh, particular piece here as we wait for our guest. We're having just a little slight, here we go, right here. This is, it was done by Joseph Cecil Brill. I'm going to play this at the beginning of the Birth of a Nation. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show.
And that was the opening theme of the 1915 silent movie, Birth of a Nation. And, you know, it sounds very innocent and all, but it's a very awful. If you've seen the movie, if you've sat through the whole three hours, you know it's just one of the worst movies as far as the theme ever made. Technically, for that era, it was amazing, but as a theme about racism and just so many just stereotypes in it, it's just pathetic. And that's what we'll be talking to. I just contacted our guest, uh, Dick Lear, who should be on shortly. But if you want to join in the conversation, it's 424-675-8315. Again, 424-675-8315. And the thing about this show is that we like to give you information that's not really talked about out there. That's why it's called the Root and Root Show, where we get at the root of issues that at the same time we listen to roots music, be it jazz, gospel, blues, country, hip-hop, soul, reggae, Zydeco, you name it, we do that here. But we like getting at the root of issues and seeing what is going on and why things are the way they are in many instances and what can be done to change them. And reading this book, and this is a book I've been waiting for for a number of years, and as a matter of fact, rather than me continue talking, I'm going to have our guests talk now. And I'm just happy to have on the program right now the author of the book, The Birth of a Nation, How a Legendary Filmmaker and a Crusading Editor Reignited America's Civil War. And I'm talking about Dick Lair. Are you there, Dick? Yeah, hi, hi, Greg. How are you? How are you doing there? And listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315. I just want to say that I'm just... You know, the first time I heard it, and I know your story about how you heard about the movie Birth of a Nation, sure. and it was in a college class. Mine was in high school, my last year of high school, where I got a book written by this film author, Donald Bogle, who's African-American. He wrote one of the first books about blacks and films, and he mentioned Birth of a Nation in there because it has all of the stereotypes that were later used in other movies, and actually, I argue are still out there. And I finally saw the movie on PBS one night. I didn't look at the whole three hours, but I looked at enough to let me know that it was just repulsive. And then my experience as far as um, learning more about it was when I actually went to college at Ohio State University. In an African-American studies class, our teacher told us more about Birth of a Nation, but she mentioned someone that had never been mentioned to me in any of my schools prior to that, and I'm talking about the person you mentioned, William Monroe Trotter. I'm just happy that you wrote the book because you talk about him because there's only one book that I know of that's out there about him. I think it's called The Guardian Right, Boston. It was a, uh, basically a biography of Trotter that was written, gosh, I think back in the 70s, and it's long right. out of print. And, yeah, because uh, we had it actually, in our it collection. A, that, that book was a, a very helpful resource for me. Um, and uh, well, I'm, uh, th- thanks for that. I mean, I'm glad I'm glad Trotter meant something to you and rang a bell because uh, for me, um, again, having seen the movie in a college film course, a survey course, and that was focusing on Griffith and his, you know, pioneering film techniques, and then as kind of an offhand aside, they say, "Oh yeah," and the content's really racist. But look at this close-up, you know. Look at this right. uh, fade-out, and and uh, 
so to like have an opportunity through Trotter, William Monroe Trotter, the, you know, the Boston civil rights leader, to tell what is I consider essentially to be a protest story, uh, you know, and, and to be able to put this movie into its larger cultural and social context, uh, you know, you know, was a real kind of real pleasure in, in many ways to to bring that period alive and and do so much more than just the fact that this blockbuster film, you know, knocked America, you know, in, you know, knocked everyone's socks off, you know. And you got to keep in mind too, uh, my listeners out there, that um, compared, you know, it's like the opening of the new Avengers movie or Batman versus Superman or Star Wars. It was a oh, yeah. major. Major event. Yeah, and no, I think. It, yeah, ahead. I mean, whether it's Star Wars or Avatar, the Star Wars of its time. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. There, it, you got to find ways to like um, to um, convey what a big deal this was. And I can, you know, as I was reading your book, I was comparing. I was saying for younger listeners and younger folks who may read the book that compare, you know, not their personalities, but imagine. Something today like Steven Spielberg creates a movie, Stephen King writes it, and a member of Black Lives Black Lives Matter in Boston protested, and that's what you basically would have now. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, I think you're right. You, you're, you know, the stature of those contemporary figures is, you know parallel not you know uh to to how big a deal you know griffith was and thomas dixon who was the author of the novel the klansman which the movie was based on yeah and uh if they turned out some kind of you know hateful offensive you know drama you're right uh, i mean that is kind of an equivalent now you know talk a little bit about uh, because i believe that reading your book and just you know just thinking really about this that Trotter may have created, in a sense, the 20th century civil rights movement as far as protests. And talk about some of the things he did prior to his protest of Birth of a Nation, because it's fascinating what he was doing protesting um, Booker T. Washington right, and the right. Jack Johnson, Jeffries fight. So talk a little bit about that. Sure, sure. Yeah, because, you know, the, the protest against the this movie was just not out of the blue, but in many ways was the high watermark or the culmination of of things Trotter had been working on in terms of civil rights strategies for years. And, you know, he got into um, journalism and uh, crusading journalism, founding his newspaper, The Guardian, in the early 1900s, specifically to take on the leading, um, you know, n- nationally recognized black leader, Booker T. Washington. Um because Trotter felt that uh, the strategy that Washington advocated, kind of um, get along and go along, conciliation, um, was was not effective. And 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 Trotter looked all around him in the early 1900s and and um, saw just I mean things were worsening um, for Black America, not improving. And he was part of a group of of you know up and coming black leaders who felt that something more aggressive and more, you know, what they call direct action was in order, where you essentially, you get in the white man's face, you know. Um, And when I kind of like got into that, and because to me, I mean, Trotter is not a household name today, and he's he's kind of been lost. Which is very unfortunate. 
It's yeah, really, you know, and, uh, and when you're I talking about uh, Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and even, you know, yeah. and even on the other side with uh, Griffin, and then you have Trotter, who was a major figure that era. In fact, he, you could say in a sense that Du Bois may have been, you know, someone that he kind of like showed him the ropes more or less. I think I think the the record shows that, Greg. I mean, um, they were both at Harvard together. Trotter mentored in in some ways Du Bois. Um, du Bois was straddling a fence, so to speak, because he, you know, taught at one of Booker T. Washington's, you know, the schools that he influenced. Um, and when, but the, when Du Bois visited Boston, him I and he would stay with with uh, Trotter and his wife. And um, and I think he really truly influenced the, uh, you know, the evolving uh, Du Bois. Uh, yeah, back in the early 1900s, to my surprise, I, I discovered that Trotter was nationally recognized as a leading civil rights leader in the same breath that Du Bois and, and Washington was. Um, but you had the, I mean, they, you know, Washington and, and, uh, and Trotter, I mean, um, they had n- no love for each other. I mean, when when Washington, uh, Booker T. Washington came to Boston to, to give a speech at a convention, Trotter and his supporters uh, disturbed it, interrupted it, uh, ended up getting arrested. Uh, call you know what the newspapers called a you know a near riot, um, and it was all right. a kind of all you know again it was Trotter was uh, pushing a kind of of action direct action that just also opened up my eyes real wide because I thought you know uh, what year you know this is the early 1900s this this feels so 1960ish you know with the, and actually you could say it feels you know considering what has happened in places like Ferguson and Baltimore yeah. it feels like 21st century because they're using he's using a lot of performance theater where he has right. people standing up in various spots in these places where people are speaking and demanding that you know, Booker T. Washington in this case answer some questions and right. the thing right. that was, oh. was fascinating which I didn't know until I read the book as I was looking at the protests is how um, they would use things like stink bombs and cayenne <laughs> pepper let's talk about that yeah, no, I mean, and uh, that happened at the speech that Booker T. Washington was giving uh, in Boston. Um, it wasn't Trotter directly himself, but someone else in, in, uh, was part of his group uh, interrupted the proceedings by throwing up a pepper bomb or stink bomb. And just to, you know, um, and it, it came after um, I think Trotter stood up in his chair and was demanding uh, answers from Booker T. Washington. To, uh, to ten or more questions that uh, he and his supporters had come up with uh, as a challenge to, again, the civil rights strategy of accommodation. Um, and, and Booker T. Washington was dodging any, any of that and would have nothing of it. And so suddenly this pepper bomb went off and Boston police were in, you know, in there dragging people out. And, and, uh, and what gets me, too, is that, yeah, you know, as they're getting arrested, they get arrested. But they get taken to the station. Trotter gets released, and some of his other folks get released, and they immediately go back to the auditorium. They go back. Yeah, they try to go back and, and resume. But by then, it you know it did take a while to get out of the police station. In fact, it was Trotter's mother who posted his bail. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. And, and the uh, thing, and go ahead. I was just going to say, like to loop back to something you said earlier, Greg, about. You know the civil rights movement, and there was a um, uh, his name is Lerone Bennett, and you know he was a leading black journalist and, and civil rights leader himself right. in the sixties and seventies, and 
uh, I came across uh, articles he had written about Trotter, and he 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 credited Trotter with what he called you know throwing the first stone of the modern civil rights movement. You know, and uh, I, I think there's you know there's truth to that. And it, you know, and it's a shame. You know, as you were saying in the book, and as you're saying on the show, that. Folks don't really know him, especially, the, you know, as we take the show, it's on Black History Month. Right. And it's a shame that you see the figures, the boys, Booker T. Washington, Martin Luther King, obviously, people like that. But Trotter is completely just forgotten. Yeah, and that's no, a shame. I know. That's He's really lost the time. And, and hopefully, I mean, one of my goals with the book, and, you know, that they're, you know, draw, a, you know, spotlight onto him and, and, um, you know the uh, what he did for the civil rights movement, and certainly the protest against the move, the the movie, which uh, was so dramatic and compelling, that played out for several months in Boston. And again, I, I don't think there was anything like it in in that era. Um, and he was at the forefront, along with some you know some of the members of of the still you know in the early days of the NAACP. Um, I honestly think, Greg, one of the reasons he has been, you know, has been pushed aside and lost to time is because in 1915, you know, the NAACP was was still only seven, eight years old. Um, it was run, uh, it was trying to find its sea legs, get some traction. Um, and, but Trotter wouldn't join it, you know, uh, right. even though the, he, he had been part of trying to, uh, the precursor to the NAACP, the NAGRA movement, he had been part of that. But the NAACP in those early years was run by white liberal men, um, and and those were the leaders and presidents and the key officers in the for the first decade or more. And Trotter, philosophically, you, you know, whether you agree with them or not, said, you know, an organization for the advancement of black people should be run by black people, and I won't join this. Um, and 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 yet this is the organization you know and uh, I'm not, you know that it took off and in part because of the protest against this movie that was one of the uh, big recruiting drives um, and left in many ways left Trotter behind because he was an outlier right. you know yeah, yeah that's it and before we talk about the movie talk a little bit about his fight well it's kind of weird because he's fighting for First Amendment rights and censorship. And he really gets into that. You talk a little briefly about but the Jack Johnson fight. Because I never knew yeah. this part. I never knew yeah. that. And talk about that. Yeah. Um, you know, there was the famous Jack Johnson fight when he um, became heavyweight champion of the world. Um, and it had been, again, this is the very early days of, of film. Um, and this is before the birth of a nation in 1915. And most film was you know, 10 minutes or less, the Nickelodeons, the featurettes. And one of the things that were very popular were these very short newsreel-type things, and they called them fight films, these quickie little um, mini featurettes of, of prize fights. Um, and they had very quickly become very popular um, around the country. Um, uh, and then suddenly Jack Johnson knocks out the Great White Hope, um, uh, Jeffries, and all across America, suddenly there's a move afoot that, oh, these fight films are too violent. <laughs> you know, we can't be showing right. this Jack Johnson film, this heavyweight film. And it was it's so transparent. I mean, it was just a um, – and, and, um, and, you know, Trotter jumped on it both, you know, uh, in Boston with, through his newspaper and his own 
um, civil rights organization saying, you know, just screaming the hypocrisy of it all. Um, you know, the because uh, in fact, I think was, the film has stopped. It was stopped. As, it was stopped as all Jeffries over the goes country. Down, they, the police come in and stop the, the film. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, this newsreel of, of the Jack Johnson knockout of, of Jeffries uh, was stopped. You know, all over the country. Um, because you know, again, uh, at the time, America, white America, couldn't stomach the visual action imagery of of the outcome of that fight. Which you know, and so they came up with, you know, uh, an argument uh, uh, to support the censorship and the infringement of, you know, the the you know, First Amendment there, um, which is that it's it incites violence. You know, so, right. Which which brings us to the film, The Birth of a Nation. And talk, you know, there are some folks who don't even, you know, I know they're listening, they haven't even heard of this. Talk a little bit about what this film is and what it means to the history of film in general and why there was this protest, because there are folks out there who don't understand, who may not know. Sure. Yeah, well, uh, on the filmmaking side of things, you know, you have D.W. Griffith, who is uh, in many respects, I mean, he's the starting point in the study of American cinema, uh, uh, in, in large part because of this movie. But uh, his body of work, when he um, when he brought to you know, film was exploding beyond those shorts I was telling you about, and 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 Griffith was ambitious for the, and he wanted to elevate it to an art, and he was pushing the the form. He wanted to make longer, dramatic uh, films. And and that's exactly what he did in Birth of a Nation, which is was his his breakout film. It was more than three hours long. Uh, it's a film that uh, tells the story of the American Civil War. What bigger story could there have been back in 1915, 50 years after the end of the Civil War? Uh, and then and then the other part, the second half of the film was Reconstruction. Um, he staged, uh, reenacted Civil War battles. Um, again, which moviegoers had never seen anything like it, uh, the way he was able to, um, you know, re- re- re-dramatize some of these battle scenes with hundreds of soldiers. Um, and they're amazing. Work with, I, have to, I have to admit it. It is amazing, considering yeah. the time. No yeah. CGI. And, no CGI and, uh, or anything. Yeah. And uh, so he was using all these innovative techniques, not just having a camera sit and almost like rolling on a stage where actors move in front of it. No, he moved the camera. He had it in cars. He moved it along horses. He got in, in a hole and had horses jump over the camera. Um, he he implemented the fade-out. Um, you know, he would shoot a scene from multiple angles, which was, you know, unprecedented at the time, and even though it's commonplace today, and then right. edit it. So you had a close-up, uh, the long shot, the changing point of view, all these Quick things cut. that heightened. Yeah, yeah the right. quick cut. Exactly. Um, so the filmmaking technique was, you know, served to, you know, sort of mesmerize audiences with the action, and that's the rub because the action, uh, the portrayal of of the Civil War and especially Reconstruction, the second act of of ex-slaves freed blacks was is racist. It's just blatantly racist. Uh, the the blacks in the film are, are portrayed as heathens uncivilized, unworthy of their freedom, unworthy of their right to vote, um, predatory, seeming to only be preoccupied with, uh, with having a white woman. Um, and it's, and it's an, you know, an endless, you know, kind of screed that way. Um, 
So while it was all wrapped up in this amazing filmmaking technique, you know, uh, you know, black Americans everywhere and their liberal supporters were just horrified by what was on the screen for this uh, America's first blockbuster. Well, you know, it's just really just an awful film to watch. I mean, technically, like we've been saying, it's really superb, but the content is just awful. But talk about um, also Griffin's, as well as uh, Thomas Dixon's strategy for publicity, because they were also well ahead of their time as far as publicizing something and using anything to get publicity. In particular, talk about the trip to the White House and how they used that. Yeah, no, I mean, this is amazing stuff. I mean, again, early 1900s, it's also, it's the dawn of so many things, the dawn of, you know, you know, uh, 20th century film and stuff. It's also the dawn of the the field of public relations and po- promotion and marketing. And D.W. Griffith and Thomas Dixon, the writer, who was an extreme racist, um, you know, were, were just naturals when it came to self-promotion. Um and probably the best example is is Dixon. Dixon and the president, Woodrow Wilson, they had been classmates at Johns Hopkins, at Johns Hopkins. And so um, in early 1915, um, before the film, the film was scheduled to open in L.A. in mid to late February, um, Dixon tapped his old classmate, the president, and said, I've got something you've got to see, this new movie by this man, D.W. Griffith. Uh, uh, who's made a movie out of my book. And he kind of sold it less on the content than he did saying, this is, an, uh, this is a media revolution, this is an amazing thing. Uh, it may someday have, and, and this was right, it may someday have an application in politics, you know, in terms of shaping public opinion. So Woodrow Wilson uh, agreed um, but uh, to, to screen the film in the White House. So The Birth of a Nation turns out to be the first ever movie screened inside the White House. It was to a private audience, and Wilson, the only thing he demanded of, of, of Griffith and, and um, of Dixon is that it essentially be off the record, okay? It's a private screening. Um, cabinet members came and their wives, uh, some members of the Supreme Court, um, and it was a huge success. Um, but, again, the marketing, you know, the idea that Woodrow Wilson, uh, you know, loved the film before the night was out, um, uh, before uh, Griffith went to bed in, in, in his hotel in Washington, D.C., he made a call uh, to the West Coast and to one of his favorite columnists, uh, right. a woman named Grace something, I forget her last name, who was one of the leading Hollywood columnists in you know, the early days of Hollywood. And he broke the deal uh, with the president because uh, he told her that we just had an amazingly successful screening at the White House, <laughs> you know. And uh, two days later, it appeared in her column. Uh, so, you know, um, you know, what better way to start than having, you know, the sort of word of mouth with some limited, you know, press coverage, uh, talking about uh, the buzz in Washington D.C. around this movie. You know, one thing I was looking for in your book, I wasn't sure because I, you know, my teacher at Ohio State taught told us that Wilson said after he saw the movie, this was like. History and lightning, and it's so tr- so tragic, but so true. Yeah, and I wasn't sure if he actually really said that or not. It's I don't think we'll ever know a hundred percent, but it's my right. belief that he did say it, um, um, based on my research. And 
and and it it goes back to Griffith because um, I came across in you know in in the various interviews he did uh, digging out everything I could in terms of in that period the winter into the spring of 1915 any press interviews he did and I found uh, a March uh, a clip from a Mar- in March from a New York newspaper um, and um, in which he said. He alluded to, and I forget the exact wording in a sense, he alluded to, um, he was alluding to Wilson, basically, you can tell, but he didn't call him by name. Um, and he said, this has gotten the support of, of you know, America's most important person. For example. I don't know what it was, but he, uh, right. I don't have it in front of me. But he said, who called it history is lightning. Um, and this is before any of it got controversial, and you know, because... You know, Wilson didn't want to be tied to a quote like that, and so I feel like that's proof. Because, you know, either Griffith's making it up, um, or he is trying to be very cute and getting out there that someone we all admire and respect has called it history as lightning. Uh, and didn't and I felt Wilson actually write a history book, which Dixon said is kind of based on the movie? Uh, well, there's all this early 1900s, um, whether it's the, you know, Dixon writing novels or the historiography of the time um, that looks at Reconstruction as a horrible failure right. uh, and put, puts a big burden on, on the um, freeing, uh, you know, slaves who are, um, you know, lower forms of life and, and you know, unworthy of freedom. Um, and it, it had the, you know, again, the blessing of the leading historians of the time. And Griffin, I mean, Wilson wrote a history, you know, he was a, professor and the president of Princeton, and he wrote a history of America, which had this kind of take. I mean, he's he's a Southerner uh, himself. Right. Um, I mean, there's obviously gradations of, of racism. Uh, I mean, he wasn't a, you know, I, I don't think an extreme, hated, hateful racist the way Dixon was, but it but it was part of his body and soul, uh, and it's re- and it was reflected in his view of American history and in the Civil War and Reconstruction. Um, and as we speak, yeah, as we speak, I know there's. Oh yeah, Dixon was awful. Yeah, as we speak, there are students at Princeton University are trying to get Wilson's name taken off a number of buildings, and it's a big movement up there. I know, and I think it's, and I, you know, I'm not sure how, where I come out on that in the end, but I think what's really important, and and it's good, and I think because it, I agree with with one of the things they're doing is they're trying to. Um, bring out and, and put some emphasis and spotlight on on that side of Wilson, that you know what I would call a dark side, his, that he's right. a racist, um, and uh, and that's why I have chapters in my book called the Wilson White House. I mean, I I I don't you know I, I write about how Wilson's so well known for all these other things he did, and, and rightfully so, League of Nations, you know, all this you know uh, progressivism when it comes to economic regulation and whatnot. Um, but it, it's always overshadowed the fact that um, that he segregated the federal government. He was a racist, um, and and I just felt that again this protest drama around the movie becomes a vehicle in which to draw out that you know darker, uglier side of of Woodrow Wilson. And as you were saying, Dixon was a I mean, just out now, just just no good. I mean, he had no redeeming qualities. I and don't listeners, think so. you got, Yeah, and listeners, keep in mind that Dixon, Thomas Dixon was a huge, huge 
like I was mentioning him, comparing him kind of like to a Stephen King, not writing the same way, but he was a huge author of that period. Yeah, no, I mean, he, he was, was a best-selling author. He, and The Klansman was a trilogy of books about the Civil War and Reconstruction in which, you know, again, uh, uh, blacks were barbarians. Um, he saw the movie, the outcome of the movie, um, as, as a um, propaganda uh, piece that, um, uh, you know, and he's on record as saying this. He hopes that every everyone who sees this movie comes out as a good Southerner, which is a euphemism for, at the time, you know, for, uh, you know, a, a race, you know, racist. In fact, doesn't he also use the term comes out, because you got to keep in mind at the time, it's a good Democrat. Good Democrat, that's true, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he, he, he made no bones that, um, um, you know, that he, he saw this as, 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 a, as a vehicle to shape public opinion against um, blacks and against, slave, you know, freedom. Um, and against uh, you know all that was being done on, on the you know in, in other areas to to try to um, make things equal and fair. That's right. Yeah. Now let's talk. And by the way, listeners, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Dick Lair, author of the book "The Birth of a Nation: How a Legendary Filmmaker and a Crusading Editor Reignited America's Civil War," and it's on uh, Public Affairs Books. And let's talk about this, the protest of the movie because. You know, when you think about it, reading your book, and then really thinking about it, I can't think of any other protest. Well, I can think of only one, the movie Muhammad in the 70s. Okay. Led to some tragedies, but nothing like, I mean, this was just, you don't see this at all. Yeah, what no, it was, the protest? Mo- it was a movie that, you know, during the by the end of 1915 had, had mobilized blacks and their supporters everywhere. Um you know, the film opened in L.A. in February to some protest, and, you know, the NAACP branch <clears throat> out in L.A. had tried to do some things to stop it, and then it moved. the film moved to New York. Um, and then in April of 1915, early April, it was scheduled to open in Boston. And given um, Boston's abolitionist history and its, and its prominence at that time, uh, both Griffith and Dixon were well aware uh, that you know they might be into something bigger than uh, L.A. or New York when they went to Boston, and in fact, um, one of them said, uh, "If we can get it through Boston, we can play it anywhere." Um, so that kind of set the stage, you know, um, you know, for, for the confrontation that did occur uh, that began in early April and played out, to, you know, for the next three months. Um, it began. Uh, before the legendary uh, mayor of the time, James Michael Curley, um, because there was a censorship board and he was the city censor, um, who was um, famous for shutting down uh, theatrical plays on on the stage for when uh, the actresses or the dancers, you know, would dare bare their legs. Um, right. He had the bare, bare leg standard, you know. As, as, uh, <laughs> And, uh, and in some cases, maybe so, a bare ankle standard, you know, some of the Yeah, no, really. And uh, so, you know, they started out through the through the process of, of perhaps, you know, stopping something in its tracks. Trotter, and there was a great, you know, there's a great chapter in the book about reenacting the scene in Old City Hall where Griffith and, and Trotter face off before Curley, arguing, you know, the for and against the film. Um but try, you know, but Griffith prevails there, and uh, the movie does open, and the protests um, 
you know, moves from there, from the city hall to to the courts, um, to the streets. Trotter gets arrested uh, one week after the film opens at at the head of a demonstration involving several thousand blacks. Uh, the pictures of that night in the in the press and on you know the old microfilm is again kind of jaw dropping because you realize this is 1915, not 1968. Um, or, or, or 2015, 2016. Ex- exactly, you know, exactly. Um, and from there, they moved to the you know Massachusetts State House, where uh, Trotter and and the protesters did have the support of the then governor, the first Irish American governor, David Walsh, who and they had his support in trying to rewrite uh, again the, the then what were known as the censorship laws. Um, so that it in, would, could include this notion that um, that um, something that is, um, it, you know, is so offensive, um, you know, a, 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 along the lines of the films, could be banned. Um, right. It's basically, an argument for hate speech. You know, that, uh, that at a certain point, um, you know, the First Amendment is not absolute in terms of free expression and art because something becomes so offensive and, and and inciting violence that it can be, you know, curtailed. Um, and, and so, it's you know, funny. It's just on every, every venue imaginable uh, was in, involved and played out over the, the next three months. And, um, and in the end, on all these fronts, uh, Trotter and the protesters lost. Uh, the, the film did go on. Um, but I think um, there were other victories, uh, you know, that were made. Um, you know, short of obviously shutting down the film, which, being a newspaper guy myself, I'm not sure I I'm, would be uncomfortable with the idea of, of stopping this. Um, you just confront speech with speech, you know, uh, and that's what right. Trotter was trying to do in in a variety of ways. And, and it's funny as I was reading the book too, uh, Dick. I was just thinking about what you know how some people right now are trying to prevent certain political candidates from saying certain things. We're running for president, and, and yeah. it's like everything. History repeats itself constantly. Yeah, I know, I know, and uh, um, we have to, you know, as as offensive and hateful as things are, I mean, we have to be careful about it just because we don't like it to shut it necessarily shut it down instead of just confronting right. it. You know, it, it's something. And then the book, you know, I don't want you to give away too much else about the book because I want the listeners to get out there and read this book. Because it's very important. It is really important. But talk a little bit before we go about your experience as an undercover reporter going to a David Duke meeting. Yeah, well, I write that about that in the prologue of the book because, you know, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the first viewings of a film like this, and uh, you mentioned yours, and I mentioned mine had been in college, um, but then about, um, you know. Uh, a few years later, I was a, a first-year reporter in, in Hartford, Connecticut, at the Hartford Current, and in 1979. And um, uh, that fall of '79, uh, David Duke, uh, as Grand Dragon of the Knights of the of the Ku Klux Klan, had launched a uh, recruiting drive for his clan in in of all places, Connecticut, which was mind-boggling. You know why Connecticut? Um, but because he did, he was getting not you know not surprisingly a ton of press coverage in in the current in the local radio and TV. 
um, during that fall. And I just had this kind of crazy, wild idea. Is because he kept saying that, oh, I've, I've attracted hundreds of new members. It's an amazing success. There's a deep well of, of support in Connecticut, you know, northern liberal state or whatever. And so, but it was just him talking, and we had no idea how to verify because it's a secret organization. Right. And so I ran it by my city editor and said, why don't, why don't I join? You know, go undercover. And he said, go, go for it, you know. Um, and uh, which, you know, I called, you know, you know uh, Metairie, Louisiana, where his clan was based. And I, I used a fake name and, you know, just kind of talked my way in. I want to be part of you guys and all that kind of stuff. And and they, it, it took a while, but they, you know, Duke finally came to Connecticut um, as, as kind of a, you know, icing on his cake with all this free publicity to actually do kind of a whistle stop tour and but that you know at the end of that day he uh that's when i heard from because they wanted to get all the warm bodies they could for a secret meeting in danbury connecticut at a grange hall that they had rented under you know uh you know other pretenses um and so i showed up to that and, and there weren't hundreds of people there and that was the big news story was uh, that we broke was that this is a you know smoke and mirrors and there were really just a dozen biker types and me <laughs> um, that was that was the Connecticut clan, and so it burst his bubble, which was I think important for the public to realize. But the thing that to get you know the why you brought it up and why I wrote about it in my book is that David Duke's idea of a meeting was to show the movie The Birth of a Nation, and it's a silent movie, and he narrated it with his you know blatantly racist and hateful you know um, account of events. And I, it was at that moment, um, you know, I had studied, I'd seen the movie in, in college and was taught to appreciate its, its filmmaking technique. Uh, but it was at a David Duke secret Klan meeting uh, where I, I came in 1979 where I understood its propaganda value um, for hate I just and racism. Know, I just want to know how you, took, how you could take three hours of that. I did. His own commentary. I, I, I couldn't, and that's where I almost got into trouble, Greg. Think, you know, you brought that up. It's, I don't, you know, I talk about this in my journalism classes that I teach. Is that after, like, you know, it's, it was it was real to real back then, and after about halfway through, you know, I had the story that I needed that there's really no clan here in Connecticut, um, right? And that movie is like, and I've had enough of this guy. I made the mistake of between real saying I had to leave, <laughs> and. <laughs> So I was drawing attention to myself when if you're, you know, the first rule of kind of being undercover or false identity is don't draw attention to yourself. So it got a little got a little hairy because he and his biker guy there said, well, why do you need to leave? What are you going to do? And I started had to make stuff up. And, you know, it was December. I had said I had to go to the airport, pick up my brother. And they're going, well, where's your brother? You know, it just, it got, I got, I got scared, you know. And oh, yeah. in the end, they let me go. But, uh I, I probably should have just sucked it up and watched the whole movie. Oh God, I would. No, that that's, that takes a lot of courage to sit through that and listen to David Duke in particular. But yeah. you know, listeners, if you want to, you know, it's in public domain. Anyone can see it if you want to. If you can sit through it, it's out there, available on YouTube anywhere. You can get the movie. At least get a flavor of it, so you know. Yeah, that's right. Get a flavor. You don't want to sit through the whole thing. Although I, you know. Being someone as a historian myself, I would love to see a pristine copy of it 
with a commentary with some you know, someone like you or someone a historian breaking it down. Not David yeah. Duke. Yeah. I would really well, love uh, that. Well hopefully that's you know, some version of that is how it is taught today in colleges in the film course or in the American studies or civil rights course. Where you don't just you know, you don't just talk about close ups and quick cuts and stuff. You talk about right. the context, you know. Right. But you know, Dick, I just want to thank you for coming on. And what did you, you know, what is your goal with the book? Who do you want to read and what do you hope to get out of it? Well, I hope I, I hope civil rights, people interested in civil rights history read it. I hope people who, st- who study film read it so they, then they get the the rest of the story um, and not just in, in isolation about the filmmaking te- technique. Uh, I, I, I most of all uh, want people to, to rediscover William Monroe Trotter. Um, um, and put him back in, into the forefront of 20th century um, civil rights figures. You know, uh, that's that was probably that's probably my biggest interest. Is to me, this is a book about Trotter um, more than it is about Griffith. Griffith is the foil. Uh, but right. This is about yeah. yeah. It definitely is, and I'm just glad that I'm glad to finally get you on because I've had this book for came out in 2014. I've been hoping to get you on, and finally. Got you on here, and you've written a superb book, and I'm encur- I've been encouraging folks to pick it up, and yeah, well, I'm encouraging my listeners, and just thank you so much for coming on this evening. Oh, I appreciate and if anyone it, wants to reach you, uh, where can they, you know, do you have a website or anything? Yeah, there's a website, you know, dicklaird.com, um, and, uh, the, you know, the book, more information about the book is there, and there's, you might be interested in, you know, there's a PBS documentary in production that's, you know, based on, on the book that hopefully, you know, sometime oh, in the great. next year will be broadcast. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, and they've, got, and they've gotten some good interviews. It's in, well into production now, and and I'm I'm hopeful that'll that'll help bring this Trotter story alive, you know. so That'll be great. Well, Dick, thank you so much for coming on the show this evening. Look to meet you one day. Thanks so much for writing an excellent okay. book. Yeah, well, thanks for your good questions. Appreciate it. All right. Good night. Take care. Bye. And then, again, that was Dick Lair, author of the book, The Birth of a Nation, How a Legendary Filmmaker and a Crusading Editor Reignited America's Civil War. It's on public affairs books. And like I said, I'm not, you know, I'm not just like, you know, just saying this just because he's on air, but it is a great book, and it just brings back a legendary figure in William Monroe Trotter. And I think it's a shame that, even today in the 21st century and black history, uh, during Black History Month, at any time, any African-American history courses, you never, and I can say that, except in a few cases, you'll never hear about William Monroe Trotter, but hopefully this book will bring him to light and that documentary that Dick mentioned on PBS will bring him more so to light. So, And they'll bring out his papers and all that so you can see what a great person he was and how he was the basically the founder, the start of the civil rights protest movement of the 20th century and the things that he did are still being done in protests being led by Black Lives Matter and other organizations in Ferguson and Baltimore and throughout, you know, in, in Flint, Michigan, throughout the country. So really just honored to have Dick on here and to read this book, The Birth of a Nation. And again, if you get a chance, you can, I couldn't stomach it, but if you can look at it, it's online. You can find Birth of Information anywhere as far as the movie. But anyway, we're going to get to more music. I thought I would play this next. This is uh, about 30 minutes long, but it's Fela Kute. 
And I thought I'd play this because of this book and the fact that it's not, you know, that a lot of people aren't teaching the real history of the birth of the nation, particularly William Monroe Trotter. So I'm going to play Fela singing, Teacher, don't teach me no nonsense. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show.
get down to the underground spiritual game. We all sing together, play music together in happiness. All you have to do is to sing what I play on my horn. And let's go Yeah. Uh-huh. 
to let you know there's a different birth of a nation than that piece of trash that was made back in 1959, 19, I'm sorry, 1915 by D.W. Griffith, uh, David W. Griffith. But the thing is, again, technically it's an amazing movie, but it's just a racist propaganda. It's awful, but you should see it just to get an idea. And the thing we forgot to mention, Dick and I, in the show is that uh, the majority of the African-American characters in that movie from 1915 were in blackface. These were white actors. There are some black, actual African-Americans in it, but the ones who have the roles, the main roles, are white face, blackface white Americans, actors. So, that you know, that's that. But, yeah, check that out when you can. And I was just, you know, learn more about uh, William Monroe Trotter, too. Because he created the civil rights movement of the 20th century. And the things he did, when you read that book and read other things about him, you'll see that he was doing things that folks are still doing as far as protests. What you see in Ferguson, what you see in a lot of these communities are things that were inspired by William Monroe Trotter. So please check him out. Check the book out, The Birth of a Nation. But again, excuse me, <coughs> this is Greg. I guess so choked up, but... This is Greg Rashid again, and if you want to reach me, you can go to my Facebook site, Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. Not my public figure site, but my regular site. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Unifix, U-N-I as in F as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam, hashtag Unifix. You can go to the Blog Talk Radio site, look for the Root and Root Show, leave your comments there. And, you know, you can listen to it. If you don't listen on live on Blog Talk Radio, you can listen on a delayed basis on Blog Talk Radio, on social media, and iTunes, other places, uh, YouTube. You can also listen on Saturdays and Wednesdays on KUHS Denver Radio Television with the great Henry Archuleta as the founder of that. But, this, again, this is Greg Rasheed. We'll see you next time. We're going to do another show. The next show is going to be about the history of the Klan. So we're Continuing this KKK theme anyway, but this is Greg Rashid again. Go in love and go in peace, and we'll see you next time on the Root and Root Show. And take care to help someone in need along the way. Give them a hug. Thank you.